how to run a sales call that doesn't feel like a sales call. One of the biggest things that I hear from reps and I witness in the calls that I watch and the recordings that I listen to is there there's this layer of authenticity that is just not happening <laughs> in the call. Uh, sales rep is in sales mode, prospect is in prospect mode, and they're talking to each other like a seller and a buyer, and they're not really having real talk. And sitting in the seat of the sales professional, what we have to really do is make sure that, hey, we run a call that doesn't feel like a sales call. It feels more like a conversation, right? Where the prospect is enjoying the conversation. Maybe there's a little bit of friction. We're pushing them a little bit, but it's an enjoyable call and it's a valuable way to spend 30, 45, 60 minutes of their time. That's what today's episode is going to be all about. Before we get to that, my name is Jason Bay. You're listening to Outbound Squad. Really excited that you're here. What we're all about is helping you turn complete strangers into paying customers. So if you're an account executive that's doing a bunch of discovery and demos and multi-threading and that sort of stuff, or you're a BDR that wants to be an account executive, you're definitely in the right place. This is an audio excerpt of a webinar that I recently did with Zoom Info. Uh, we had Director of Sales, uh, Ryan Osterfeld from Zoom Info, and then Bella Keller, an account executive on his team, also from Zoom Info, on the webinar. And we talked about everything from how to stay in control to keep the call from going off the rails, how to find a good balance between discovery and qualification, because you got to do your qualification, but you got to do it in a way where the prospect doesn't feel like you're interrogating them. Uh, how to raise problems through carefully uh, crafted questions, excuse me, knowing the right timing to multi-thread and ultimately how to solidify next steps. So these two really drop some fire. You're going to really enjoy it. So without further ado, let's get you to the interview. Today's conversation is all going to be about how to run a sales call that doesn't feel like a sales call. And the reason why we chose this topic is it's Q4 for most of you and running a really tight sales process is going to be really key to making sure that you hit your 2023 number. Um, got a couple of really great guests today. So uh, Ryan is head of new business sales at Zoom Info. Great to have you here, Ryan. Isabella is an account executive at Zoom Info as well. And I think between the two of you, there's nearly two decades of sales experience and a ton of leadership experience on Ryan's side. So uh, I'm excited to dig in. You two ready? Yeah. Thanks for having us, Jason. Yeah, thanks, Jason. Cool. Yeah, you bet. So a couple of things as we get started. We would love to know a little bit more about who you are. So I'm going to launch a poll. Let us know in the poll. What's your position? Are you an SDR? Are you an AE, a sales leader? Are you sales enablement, marketing, other? Let us know. This will help us customize the content for you. And yes, Joshua, it'll be recorded. We'll share it out. Yes, we got a ton of account executives, it looks like. Yeah. Okay. So as we start to dig in, we'll close the poll out here in a second. Uh, we're going to break today's content up into three parts. So if we have a sales call coming up, we're going to talk about the prep piece of that. So what we need to do to prepare ourselves to run a great call. We're going to spend quite a bit of time on the actual call itself. So everything from how to get it started to what good versus bad discovery looks like, and then ultimately how to secure next steps, follow up, all of that kind of stuff. So I'm going to end the poll. So just so you guys can see, that's, that's what we got for the audience today. A lot of account executives, a few BDRs, some sales leaders that sort of thing. 
So let's just start with um, Isabel. I'd like to kick the first question your way. One of the things that we talked about in our prep call was something along the lines of, hey, you have one shot to make a great first impression, like make time for prep. So I think one of the common things that I oftentimes hear with reps that I work with is I don't have enough time you know, to really prep for these calls. And you know what, isn't that what discovery is for anyways? I'm going to learn all that stuff. I'm going to get it to ask all of those questions. So how do you think about if we start with the prep work, how do you think about that piece preparing for an upcoming call? Yeah. So I look, I get it right. Like I'm, I'm a rep myself, you know, I know that we're juggling a lot all day, every day, but at the end of the day, we have one shot to make a really good first impression. So in my mind, whether I am slammed or not, I am always carving out a good five to 10 minutes to do meaningful prep for that call. Because what you start to notice is when you're leading a discovery call where you've already prepped and can ask way more targeted questions, where you're showing these companies that you already know them a bit, or at least you know some of the challenges that they're going to face, it immediately elevates the conversation and gives you credibility that you did the work, you showed up and you're not just, you know, kind of running by the seat of your pants, so to speak, right? So, you know, whether it's even I'm having to wake up a little bit early or I'm doing yeah. it at the end of the day when I'm watching the Packers play on Sunday, like I'm making the time for my prep every single call. Yeah, you mentioned something, you know, elevating the conversation. There's a stat, uh, Rain, Rain Group pulled a bunch of buyers. It's like a thousand B2B buyers and what they shared was that they felt around six out of every 10 calls that they participate in when they're being sold to are like a waste of their time. And one of the things I always talk about is in sales, it's one of the few occupations, maybe besides being a lawyer, where you kind of start from behind the starting line. Like the prospect's already skeptical of you because they've had so many bad experiences with other salespeople. So that prep, like elevating the conversation, establishing credibility, that sort of thing is, is super key. Ryan, I know you're big on process. So when you think about preparation, you know, the process is a really big part to streamlining how long it takes and really thinking about like what to look for. How do you guys think at Zoom Info, all the reps that you guys are training and onboarding, that sort of stuff, like what is, how do you think about this from a process element? And if we were to get pretty tactical here. Yeah, I think that you should have a formula or a document that's repeatable, right? There are certain things that you should be able to go and identify before going into the call every single time. It shouldn't be like you're creating it on the fly each time. It should be, hey, here are the five, six things I generally look for before I jump into that conversation. As Zoom Info, some of those examples are things like, you know, going on their LinkedIn, are they a prior user? Going in Zoom Info, did they get funding recently? Are they hiring sales and marketing leaders? Did a new project get announced at their business? Are there any news articles about them? Just things that, again, to Bella's point, will instantly build credibility. And then I think also, you know, you only have such a finite time to pound someone with questions during discovery. And so like Bella said, like, I want those to be meaningful. I want my questions that I'm asking to be able to tie it back to outcomes or problems I'm solving or understanding what their gap is. I don't want it to be basic things that I could have just done my homework on. And so again, it's just something that's a repeatable formula. And there's certain points for every company where, hey, these are good things to know. And if I do my due diligence online ahead of time and I take it a little bit, you can make it a process. You can knock it out really, really quickly. But that's just, you know, for our team here, it's a non-negotiable in terms of, you know, how we operate on any sales call. 
Got it. And, and those of you out dropping questions in the chat, we have a Q&A section. So drop that in the Q&A section. We'll try to filter those out and answer as many as we can. Um, Isabella, if you're thinking about to a specific types of things that you look for, do you have any examples of like specific things that you're looking for when you research and maybe the conclusion that you would draw based on those things and how that might dictate how you approach a call just so people have a, an example? Yeah, you know, like one thing I always love to look for at Zoom Info is, hey, have they used Zoom Info before? You know, looking at their LinkedIn profile to see what their previous experience looked like and are any of those those accounts already customers of ours? Because if so, they're instantly going to be more knowledgeable about what we do and the impact that we can have. Uh, and it, it just completely changes the course of what that conversation is more likely to look like. Um, I also use our, a lot of our intelligence to figure out, hey, did any of these companies maybe recently win an award or did they just launch a new product? Because if they did, they're likely going to have some really tangible goals that are tied to things like that, that I can then ask my discovery questions around to Ryan's point to get really hard quantifiable metrics and real pain points to tie everything back to when you're ultimately, you know, doing a demo or selling your solution, right? So um, I love to look for things like that. I also look um, just online at their website. You can really oftentimes learn a lot about a company and who they sell to on their site. So you can get some of those you know, more minuscule questions out of the way and focus on really the good stuff that's going to lead you to just uh, like a much more well-rounded discovery and, and ultimately a presentation later on down the road. Yes, there's a lot of stuff in here. If we could, you guys, if we could limit the LinkedIn profiles in the chat, that would be great. <laughs> Just so we're not kind of blowing it up with spam in there. Uh, we'll have an opportunity at the end if you want to share that kind of stuff, you can. Um, but with research, it sounds like I'll get Aaron. <laughs> so you're looking for hiring new products. Are they a previous customer? Um, have they used our product before, maybe in another role? You're looking for like, is there any kind of familiarity? It sounds like. Exactly. Yeah. And then I'm assuming you guys are also looking at if there's been previous closed loss deals and all that kind of stuff, extracting any reason why they may or may not have moved forward. Exactly. And then that allows you within the first couple minutes to like start the call in a place where you can just get right to the meat of the call versus finding something out in a second or third call. Um, Correct. Yep. Got it. I was gonna, I was going to add to that too. We also, yeah, you know, we use conversation intelligence for all of our sales calls. So something that Bell and I will go do is we'll go look through our conversation intelligence and see, you know, how many prior engagements have they had? We'll go listen to the first 10 minutes of the call, the last 10 minutes of the call, like what were their pains before? What was the reason they didn't move forward with us back then? And that's just additional ammo and firepower for us that we might be able to kind of glean ahead of time what the objection could be or why they didn't partner with us before. Got it. So Ryan, I want to kick this question your way. When you're preparing for discovery conversations, how do they change if it's more of a below the line folks that hop in? So let's say in your guys' example, maybe a sales manager or even like maybe a sales rep or someone that's been tasked with like looking for data options versus I got a first call or a call coming up with someone that's got like some level of seniority, like a VP or someone like that. How does the approach, how do you think about the difference based on the role of the person? 
Yeah, I think if it's a higher level decision maker, someone that we flag could probably have a lot of pull in the organization. We're going to take a little bit more time on that because, you know, we've pulled data in the past and you know, over 50% of all closed one opportunities for my business segment, as an example, are typically with the C-suite. So depending on the level, that's going to dictate some of the prep. If we identify that they're going to be a champion for us, they're going to be a user, they're probably not someone that's going to sign the check, but they could be a really strong advocate. That's where I'm going to recommend, you know, keeping it to a very defined process, keeping it to a very defined amount of time. You know, there is a point where there's, you know, paralysis with all of the data as well. So I just think it does very much depend on, you know, is this an inbound or an outbound lead? Is this a higher level decision maker or a lower level decision maker? And then adjusting accordingly, um, because we all hope that we get CEOs on our calendar every day. But in reality, we know yeah. that a lot of times it's going to be, you know, deals won and work through a champion more often than not. Yeah. So the multi-threading piece, are you thinking about this during the research portion of the account, especially if it's a larger account with more employees? Are you already thinking in advance before you even hop on a call? Who are the potential people that I'm going to want to make sure are involved in this? Are you taking it to that extent? I, I am. Yes, I would say it depends. Yeah. So Zoom Info, you know, for we, we drink our own champagne, I guess is the best way to put it, but we will go in and we'll map out the buying committee. We'll say, hey, here's the CEO, here's the head of sales, head of marketing, here's the rev enablement person. These are all key stakeholders that we think will probably need to get looped yeah. in the deal. And I'm sure we're going to get to it at a later point in the webinar, but that also helps us with our next steps and our follow-up. You know, I don't want to leave it to my prospect to pick the next step in an ideal world. I want to help guide them through that buying journey with me. And that's where I can then kind of lean into my pre-call prep and say, hey, I noticed Jason is your head of sales. You know, do you think he'd want to get eyes on something like this when you evaluate technologies and solutions like this? Like, hey, do you have access to Jason's calendar? Things like that. But I am mapping that out as best as I can ahead of time so that I can guide the sales cycle a little bit more strategically. Yeah. And this is something that takes a little bit of effort to do that it, I think is a massive pro tip. Just knowing who could be involved. The one thing that I always say is that it's easier to correct than to educate. It's much easier for me to say, no, that's actually not Jason. Isabella is actually probably the person we should get on. Then for you to just ask, who is your sales leader that you think should, you know what I mean? When you ask a really generic, it's hard to answer. And also it makes you kind of come off like pretty lazy, like you didn't mm -hmm. do the homework. Okay. so. Once we have this prep piece and we start to move into the meat of the call, Isabella, this is like a really kind of granular question, but if you think about five to 10 minutes leading up to that call, is there any kind of mental preparation that you do for a call or any kind of routine or anything like that? Or do you tend to go like, like a lot of us back to back to back and just hop right in? Like, what does that maybe time before or even the day of, what are you doing? just right before you start the call? Yeah, like personally, I love to at least even have 15 minutes between my calls so that I can digest what just happened and still get into the right headspace for that next call. I think what's yeah. just really important when it comes to like stepping into a call is just every single time that you do, you have to step in with the mindset that this could be a deal. You know, I mean, Zoom Info, we work with so many different types of companies, some that maybe on paper, you're not sure if it would be like the absolute best fit, but at the end of the day, like everyone's trying to sell more. And so it's really important in my, um, in my opinion, to really control your headspace and just go into every call 
fresh, ready, thinking that something could come out of it. And if not, great, you're going to qualify that person or disqualify them in that case, right? But just not coming in with any preconceived notions about how that call is going to go, I think is really important. Got it. So love it. Let's take one question that we'll kind of dig into the meat of the call. I'll just kind of throw this out to you too. Bob Patterson asked when doing prep work and research prior to the call, do you set a time limit? I've been caught in this analysis paralysis trap and spend way too much time. And if I had to add something that I oftentimes hear is, you know, I've seen reps spend like 30 to 60 minutes on, on prep and then come away with nothing. Is there any kind of time limit that you might set? Or like, how do you know when you're done? prepping maybe is uh, how do you know when it's good enough to stop how do you two think about that i think for me it just depends on the volume and what your day looks like right for zoom info we're, we're very fortunate where we might have three five meetings on our calendar in that instance i'm doing the prep work well in advance and they might be five or ten minutes a piece and i'm just going through a little bit quicker i know that there are other people on this call that might have enterprise sales cycles or they might get one or two meetings a week and that's all they're getting that might be a very different scenario. I might really build out a roadmap yeah. and spend a good 30 minutes to an hour preparing for it. So I think it just depends on the volume that you're getting and you know how important that meeting is overall. But at the end of the day, you know, I think that it should be something that you can do in a repeatable process and a repeatable time frame. So if you're finding that sometimes it's taking a 30 minutes, sometimes it's taking you an hour, those are things where we can probably cut back on some things and figure out what's mission critical and, and what's not. Yeah. And then understanding your sales cycle to your point too, where it's like, hey, if, if your goal is to close five big deals over the course of a year, yeah, you're going to spend quite a bit more time researching than I have to close you know, 10 to 20 deals every month, you know, and I'm doing something very transactional. Uh, great questions, you guys. So if we start to move into the portion of the call where we're getting started, let's, let's call it the intro for lack of a, a better way of saying it. And let's think about the first five to 10 minutes. Um, I'll kick this question your way, Ryan. There's a lot of, uh, I don't know if it's a misconception, but I hear a lot of, and I see this advice where like the relationship is not important and rapport is not important. And I think that we like kind of go both extremes where it's like, we just get straight to business when we hop on with someone or we spend way too much time talking about meaningless stuff. How do you think about like the moment you hop on the call, the first impression what are you, what are we thinking about? What should we do? For me and, you know, I've seen thousands and thousands and thousands of different customers at this point, just through Zoom Info. I've had the ability to work the US market and the EMEA market. So even from a culture standpoint, I've seen some vastly big differences across those, those uh, you know, buying personas. I think for me, I use the mirror effect, right? If I jump into a meeting and I see someone throw on their Zoom meeting and they're super happy and they're talking about the weather, then I'm going to take a couple of minutes to build that quick rapport because now is the time to be able to do it. But if I jump on the call with the CEO and my SDR called him 25 times to get him on a meeting with me <laughs> and he's not super happy and he's not showing his camera and he's being real direct with me, then I'm going to be really direct with him. I'm going to match that emotion and that feeling because I think that's how they want to sell, be sold to. So for me, like the way that I do the small talk or build the report very much just is defined by how the individual on the other side presents themselves. And I try to keep it no more than a couple of minutes uh, because again, like we only have 30 minutes and when you're with C-suite or any high level decision maker, it's about impact value outcomes as quickly as I can. So I don't want to burn my time up too much, you know, talking about how horrible the weather is in Grand Rapids, Michigan or something like that. But again, 
I think yeah. it kind of depends on the audience and who I'm speaking with. So Jamie in the chat said the first minute is the most challenging for me. And I would say that reps probably struggle more with the really serious prospect that when it wants to get to business than the one that seems really happy on the call. Um, Isabella, like if you hop on a call with a prospect and you can tell that just like, let's get to business, like most executives are like, what do you, how would you typically open the call? I think a lot of people have not seen or been taught how to handle a situation like that. How would you typically open a call like that? And what would that yeah. sound like just as an example? So people can kind of hear it. Yeah. I mean, I, I think in that case, like I like you know, exactly to Ryan's point, I love the mirroring. I think that that's the right route to go and just calling out and like thanking them for their time saying, Hey, I know you're the CEO. I'm sure you're really busy and you have tons of other things going on. I appreciate you carving out some time for me because of, and I'd love to insert a reason as to how we've helped other people that are just like them. Right. And giving that credibility right out of the gate that you, this is not new for you. You are an expert in what you do, whether it's your very first sales call or whether you've been, you know, doing this for however many years, right? Uh, just kind of setting it right out of the gate that, hey, like these are similar challenges that I've helped with. I appreciate you carving out the time for me. How can I help you? And I don't think that there's anything wrong with at that point than just getting, you know, right into the meat of it. I, I would even say too, sometimes if I find someone's really defensive or just wants to get right to the point, I'll kind of use empathy as a way to kind of break the ice or break the barrier a little bit. And I'll kind of, I call it falling on the sword. Hey, yeah, I'm yeah. sorry. I know it's a sales call. It's probably the last thing you want to do, but I'm just so confident that I can help your business. And I'm really excited for this conversation. So we can just jump right into it, but here's what I'm looking to accomplish. So I like to kind of like almost just fall on the sword and make it feel like, I'm sorry, even though I might not have done anything wrong and they wanted this meeting, you know, I feel like a lot of people, when you almost apologize or show that vulnerability, instantly they're like, hey, it's not you, Ryan. It's just, I'm on 10 of these a day or hey, like I'm just really busy. Yeah. So I need to get right to it. So that's the play that the motion that I like to try to do to kind of break it down quickly. And there's almost this, especially with an ex a seasoned executive, I've noticed that when you have that, um, I don't know what you call it. It's, you, you use the word empathy. It's, uh, God, I'm totally brain farting on the word. Just being able to read the situation. I'm forgetting what the, the phrase or word for that, but the, just being able to read what's going on in the situation and being able to acknowledge it. I th EQ, thank you, everyone. <laughs> yeah, EQ, your ability to read the room, emotional intelligence. So we wanna read the customer, uh, set the agenda, and then one thing I think that's super important, you brought up Isabella, and this is what every executive, when I get a VP or a CRO on a call, like they want to know proof points right away. They don't necessarily ask this directly, but when I've kind of looked at the clients that I've closed and I've asked them, hey, what did you like really want to see? Who have you worked with that's similar to us? And what outcome did you get? Like credibility is so big at the very beginning. So with the agenda, you know, Sandler kind of refers this to this as like an upfront contract, but what exactly are you saying is the purpose of the call? And, and do you invite them to like add to that agenda? Like how, how much participation, I guess, are you looking for versus saying, Hey, I speak to a lot of people like you. We're usually talking about this stuff. Here was what I was thinking we could talk about. Does that sound good to you? Is it more you kind of establishing it, inviting collaboration, a mix of the two? How do you think about that first part? Because I think this sets the tone for the rest of the call. I personally think it's a little bit of a mix of both, right? Like I think the 
re the real goal of setting an agenda is you want to be able to keep control of the conversation right out of the gate. And by doing that, you're establishing what you want that call to look like. But it's not just about us, right? We want to make sure that the prospect is getting out of the getting out of the meeting what they want to, right? And so I love to ask for a little collaboration. Hey, is there anything that you want to add to that? Anything that you would change? Just something small so they do still feel involved in that and that they don't just have to 100% go our process. And I would just say like everyone's calls are different, right? At Zoom Info, we do discovery, the demo and pricing all in one meeting, which is a lot. And there's other companies that might just spend 30 minutes or an hour doing discovery. I think the biggest thing is that oftentimes your customers don't know what a typical sales process looks like with your organization, with your business. They don't know how to buy from you. And so I think setting an upfront contract or an agenda, it just kind of helps level set with your prospect. Hey, this is what a typical call looks like with me. And this is what excellent looks like. You know, this is what we're in for. This is what we're going. You know, whenever I see a, uh, an account executive where they're getting railroaded right in the beginning of the call where someone's like, show me pricing and I want to understand how much this costs. Most of the time, I think it's because the account executive didn't set proper expectations of, hey, I want to understand what led to the call. I want to show you how I solve it. And I promise you, we will get into pricing today and we will walk through numbers. You know, I think that puts people's guards down. And again, I do yeah. open it up to my audience. Like, hey, if you want to change this, modify, if I miss something, please let me know. But again, I think that if you can guide your buyers through what a proper call should look like with you and what they're committed to for that time frame. Oftentimes it lowers the barriers, it lowers the guards of your prospects very quickly and builds trust in my opinion. So Scott in the chat said, using customer voice at this stage has been key for establishing authority and you guys at Zoom Info are really big. On customer voice, can you Ryan share a little bit more about what customer voice is and how you might use it in a situation like this? In terms of just like saying that we work with other companies, things like that, that's kind of what you're referring to, Jason? Yeah, the whole, the you know, typically when, you know, VPs of sales are looking into this, here's what they do, speaking through the lens of the customer versus pitching, which is what most companies would do, most reps would do at this point. Yeah, I would think it depends on your product and your service. But for mm -hmm. us, like the way I think about it, most companies have never bought a tool like ZoomInfo, right? They don't yeah. know the value of ZoomInfo. They don't know the proper things that it can do and how it can help solve problems. And a lot of times, the leaders that I am talking to, they're coming to learn and to be educated and they want to keep up to par with their competitors. So I think making people feel like you're going to help them level up their organization, help them get current with what the market is doing is an easy opener. So for my team, we'll start with things like, hey, Jason, I noticed that you're out in New York and that you specialize in marketing and events. Here's, we work with five other companies right in your backyard that are doing the exact same things and seeing great success with Zoom Info. And what most of my clients are looking to do when they get on calls like this is understand where they're not, you know, automating things, where they're having inefficiencies in their process. Like, does that align to what you're looking to understand today? But it's making them feel like they're joining the ship. No one wants to feel like I'm the first yeah. person trying this product and it's never been proven. And I have no idea if it's going to generate ROI. Like no one wants to be that first person. They want to feel like, man, I'm missing out. Like if all of my competitors are doing this to elevate and I'm not, that's why I'm getting left in the dust. That's why I'm not growing as much as I thought I could be. And so I want them to feel like, hey, this is something that everyone's doing and you should consider it too, because it will help you guys grow and hit your targets and things like that. Yeah. Love that. It's so good in my experience, getting people to talk about problems is so much easier when they can agree with 
they can join in on the problems that their peers are having and saying, I'm having those too, versus saying, I'm having this problem because I'm incompetent and I feel like I'm the only one that can't figure this out. Absolutely. So that customer voice, I love that. You know, Typically when people hop on this call, they're looking to solve these challenges. And that's oftentimes I've seen the best way to segue into more of the discovery part of the call is I basically put bumper guards up and you guys know the common problems that you solve. You want the conversation to focus around stuff that you could help with that's also impactful to them. So suggesting a few things is a really great way to start. Um, so Isabella, like when you think about the actual discovery portion of the call and we get into the meat of it, this is where I feel like you have to do the more, most like free forming in the call. And it's really hard to like script this part of the, the call out. How do you kind of look at this in general in terms of like, what are the boxes that you're looking to check from a discovery standpoint? And another way of asking that question might be like, how do you know when you've done good enough discovery at that point? What are you, what are you looking for? Yeah. You know, for me, I'm really looking for something like a, a true quantifiable pain point, right? Like everyone's always going to have a surface level pain, but not just that. What's the result of not hitting X number revenue goal that you guys are trying to hit this year? What happens if you don't do X, Y, or Z, right? Because I, I always have the phrase in my head, it's actually written on my computer in a little sticky note. So I re remember it on every single call that I'm on, but it says, dig, dig, dig. So it's not just about getting that first discovery question, but what can I get that's further than that? And then even one step further below that, because all those layers of pains that you're getting are going to be different things that you can ultimately tie back to down the road. And so that's really kind of what I'm thinking of is just is metrics, right? Like not just, hey, we want to sell more. Okay, how much more? How many meetings do you need to set to hit that? How much time are your reps spending to be able to source those meetings right now? Things that you can just, you know, then tie your solutions back to at a, and they can see the impact, right? Companies that are spending money, it is all about the ROI at the end of the day. And so if you have metrics like that, it makes it a lot easier to tie it back to an ROI later on. So I think there's two situations that reps will often run into here. And I'm curious how you suggest handling them. One is, what if the prospect doesn't have the metrics? So they don't know the exact numbers. It, you'd be surprised how many sales leaders I talk to also that don't have their numbers or don't know them, which is, that's a conversation for another time. <laughs> I'm like, wow. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but like, what do you do when someone doesn't, they don't know the numbers, let's say, that you're trying to find. Yeah. I honestly, I just ask them to ballpark. I'd be like, Hey, look, I get it. Yeah. You know, not, not everyone's like us where you got to make 20 calls a day or you have to hit whatever those hard quantifiable metrics are, but just like, come on, help me understand your world a little bit. Like if you were to guess how many of these do you think you want your reps setting up or, you know, just trying to keep it even a little bit looser, but just doubling down, even when someone doesn't know it, if you poke them again on it, usually you're going to get something out of it. It's at least a little bit more concrete than I just, yeah. I don't know. And I've had calls too, where, you know, Jason, they come in, they're like, I don't think we have any pain. I just clicked on a white paper and your SDR called me and I want to understand what led to, you know, I want to just learn more, you know, in that instance, again, it's using that customer voice to say, Hey, well, Hey, customers like you generally are having these challenges. These are things we're fixing, but even if they don't have those challenges in my mind, the way that I think about it is what is their current state and what is an ideal future state? And will my solution be able to bridge that gap? 
If I think that I can bridge that gap and help them get to an ideal future state, that is when I know that I can help solve problems that maybe they don't even know about. That is when I know that I can then shift into the demo because it's not just a cookie cutter demo where I walk them through the same 15 things that I walk every customer through, but it's very tailored and pointed to their problems to help them go from point A to B. So oftentimes when I don't have those quantifiable metrics, I wanna keep it a little bit more high level. Hey, where are you at right now? Like what's something that keeps you up at night? Where's your biggest challenge? Like where do you wanna see yourself in the next two to three years? What have you put in place to get there? And then my method or my reasoning is, what can I do to help bridge the gap with our solution to help them get there much faster than what they even thought was possible? Yeah, and I think that's so crucial. If you're getting any kind of resistance when you're looking for metrics, just explain the reason why you're trying to find it. Like, why are you asking the questions? And then it won't feel like so much of an interrogation. So Brent Holmes asked that, how do you layer the questioning to get to quantifiable pain without it seeming like an interrogation? Talk about why you're trying to find the numbers. Then customer voice, again, is really great. Hey, typically when I'm speaking with VPs of sales about self-sourcing with their account executives, there's usually a very specific thing that they want to accomplish, whether percentage of pipeline that comes from outbound, maybe it's a number of qualified ops they need to create on a quarterly basis. How do you think about it? And I, suggesting how other people think about it, it's just so much, there's so much less friction with the questions when you do it that way. Um, I was just saying, I think too, like, it's just about your questioning as well, right? Like. I don't know what your solution solves or what questions you need to understand, but one thing that I can probably say as a blanket statement that applies here is there's a time for open-ended questions. There's a time for closed-ended questions. In my opinion, in discovery, that is the time to ask open-ended questions, not yes or no answers. Tell me more. Can you elaborate on that? Why now? Things that are just going to force them to speak. You know, Too often when I'm listening to a new account executive sales, like, is this a problem? Yes or no? You know. Do you need help with this? Yes or no? Like those are just giving people easy outs to your questions. Find a way to ask it as an open-ended question because you'd be surprised like how much information will flow and then how much more natural the dialogue will feel just by asking more open-ended questions in general. So let's think about, one thing I find helpful is thinking of the discovery conversation as kind of like a checklist of things that we want to take from the conversation and, and it might take multiple conversations. But what I've got so far from you two is that uh, we need a goal. So a future state, what are they trying to accomplish? We need a current state. The problem is kind of the thing that is keeping them from getting from current to future state. What else do we wanna uncover during discovery? I know we haven't really talked about stakeholders and multi-threading yet. We haven't talked about champions, none of that kind of stuff. Is there? Other kind of things, if you were to think about, here are the three to five boxes we need to check in terms of information that we're getting during discovery. What are those, what are those boxes? I, I would say, like, I'd love to understand the team and the landscape, right? You're going to understand some of that from your prep, hopefully, but things can look different, right? When you hop on that call, I want to know who else is going to be involved in that decision. And you don't even, you, I never ask it that way, right? But um, there's tons of different ways that you can understand, hey, who else is help trying to help the company drive more revenue, right? Um, but understanding, I think the who, I want to understand who is their market, right? Um, not just who their team is. So I can tie everything in my demo very um, to Ryan's point, right, tailored and specific to them later on down the road. Um, and I also want to know the how, right? Like, how are they looking to hit this? 
Um, how do they want to go to market when they're reaching out to new companies? Because uh, all of those things are going to ultimately tie really well later on down the road when you're trying to sell them on a solution. Yeah, I, I double down on that too, right? Like I think um, for us, this is where people are most vulnerable generally in a good way. They're open to questions. They're open to giving you information. It gets way harder once the numbers start popping up on the screen for pricing and packaging. Like that's where people, I, in my opinion, play defense. Once they know the number, they'll try to dictate what they want next. So for me, I'm just trying to get as much information in that beginning piece to kind of set me up for success when I close or when I'm pushing next steps. Hey, great. Seems like this is a huge initiative at your company. Who else would generally need to get eyes on this? When you deploy solutions like this in the past, what's the timeline look like? What's the process internally that you need to go through in order to get this accomplished? Um, one of the things that influence pricing for us is like users. When I ask people how, much, how many users or sales reps they have at the end of the call, the answer is always one or three, something really small. But if I ask it in the beginning of the call during discovery, I get a real answer because they know they don't know it's influencing price yet. So for me, I'm trying to start thinking almost two steps ahead, which is like, what am I going to position for next steps? What is the right recommended path for this sales cycle? You know, how do I make sure that I'm guiding this through the appropriate sales cadence? And I feel like prospects are way more open to it in the beginning because they don't really know that that's what you're doing. Where once you get to the end, you know, those guardrails do pop back up and it can become a, it can become a little bit challenging in terms of moving it forward. Totally. So I need a goal, problem that's getting in the way. I need to know a little bit more about the team and landscape, timeline, their buying process. And then the extra credit is kind of like the stuff that helps you customize the demo to who they sell to, all that kind of stuff. Um, okay. So I thought this was an interesting question. Sebastian said in the chat, not all problems are created equal. Don't jump on the first problem, dig into it because the change management might not be worth the change. My question is when you think about the thing that they're trying to accomplish or the problem that they're trying to fix, I feel like there's a lot of different levels to that, especially in a sale where they're are a decent number of stakeholders where there's almost this prioritization of the problem that takes place. So to give you guys an example, if someone was hiring me, that would be, do we have more of an outbound problem that we need to fix? Or is it more of like our reps don't multi-thread effectively and we don't, like we're losing deals later in the sales cycle. And there could be a ton of other problems that they have. How do you guys think about like what you're attaching Zoom info to? Do you ask about executive priorities do you ask about bigger stuff like that? How do you prioritize things? Like, how do you know you're connecting to something that's big enough that a lot of people or the right people will care about it? Especially if you're not talking to the senior most person. I think a couple of things and, that I think of, um, you know, to Bella's first point, like I joke with my team, but when we ask why now or what the pain is, my, mod my mantra is double tap. We will double tap that yeah. question again, because oftentimes that first answer might be a, to your point, hey, we're having problems with outbound, but what does that actually mean? Like, why do you think you're having problems with outbound? Can you tell me more? What are the business implications of outbound? What have you tried to solve yeah. this? So for me, I'm double tapping because oftentimes as ZoomInfo, you know, the most common thing I hear when I ask why is we need contact data. We want to prospect more effectively. Well, why are you looking to prospect more effectively? What's not been going well? Why is this such a priority right now? So it's asking those layering questions. And then again, it's to me, it's latching on to what I actually can make an impact or drive outcomes to. There are some instances where 
You know, I might tell a prospect, hey, you told me all of your outcomes and the problems you're solving. To be really transparent, Jason, I probably am not going to be able to help with piece A. That's going to be something different than what we do, but I can absolutely help with piece B. Is that something you want to explore further and how we can solve for that problem? But it's just being really transparent that not every problem that a customer have, we're not going to always be able to solve everything. And I think, you know, our customers yeah. appreciate that transparency sometimes on what can you actually solve and what might be a far-fetched, far you know, exaggeration of maybe what you think you can solve. Love it. Okay. Yeah, I, I think that's oh, a ahead. good point. Uh, yeah, I was just going to say too, like in, in the case, right, that you get someone that is really talkative and they're throwing a lot at you, right, and all these different pains and things that they're feeling. I, I oftentimes even just like to ask, like, all right, help me understand, like, it, which of these, though, is like really keeping you up at night? You know, if we could, if you could only fix one of these things today, what would have the biggest impact on your day to day if I was able to help you with it? And yeah. then it's just going to like asking them almost to help prioritize all of those needs. And I, I really like Ryan's point of if you know that you can't help with some of those, call that out. So he gives you the credibility of, hey, I'm not here to waste your time and try to sell you on something that I know we can't help with. And then focus on the ones that are important to them and that you can relate to. And, and I think also, too, like it depends on the person, right? Like when I talk to a sales rep, those are our champions generally. They're the people that face the day-to-day -day problem of prospecting and trying to drive meetings. I'm going to gather all that information in, and that might be used on the second call when I do move up in multi-threaded decision makers. And, and that's where I'm going to then kind of tee it up for that decision maker. Hey, when I talked to Bella, she told me she's making all these calls and she's spending all this time and these are all the challenges she has. Is that what you feel like the overall problem is as well? And that's what's happening across your team. And you'd be surprised. Sometimes they might say, yeah, that's Bella's issue, but actually my bigger issue is lead routing and lead scoring. And that's what I yeah. care about. So, you know, I think depending on the level of the person you're speaking with, sometimes I take it with a grain of salt and I use it to kind of prop me up for the next meeting. And then other times I'll use it as like the single source of truth, just depending on, you know, are they a champion or are they the executive signer for what I'm looking to, to sell? So let's dig into that multi-threading piece here and kind of understanding stakeholders. Avery asked a good question. How important is understanding buyer authority on the first discovery call? And I'll kick that question your way, Bella. So I think two parts, like how important is it to understand you know, who you're speaking with? And then how do you think about engaging the folks that are not on the call? How do you think about engaging the right players and, and making that happen? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's critical to know who you're speaking to and where they fall in that decision-making process, right? Because, you know, if if I'm talking to someone that doesn't have that decision-making authority, then I know that I really want to take a lot of control at the end of that conversation to say, hey, typically then what happens next is, and I make that recommendation, right? If there's someone that is you know, a sales rep like myself, I wouldn't be involved in any of the purchases that Zoom Info makes from a software standpoint. So if you're trying to get my buy-in and help me like help you sell this, I might not be that much help, right? Yeah. And so it's really important to understand where that person falls. And so then when they are in that case where they don't have that power, guide them, help them understand how companies usually buy what you sell. Um, and, you know, also I like to be really straightforward in that case too, of, you know, how can we get in front of your boss? It sounds like this is a really good fit and it's something that's going to help you sell more. How can we work together to get this in your hands? Right. I think it's all about, especially on the lower level folks, right. Creating a champion, 
so many deals that I've closed this year are because of champions that wanted it as much as I wanted them to have it. And it was because we were able to guide them on how to, we can actually get a deal done versus, you know, if it's someone with power, of course, I'm going to go for the close and I know exactly where I'm going to walk them. Um, but I think it's really important whether wherever they fall, just to create a recommendation and outline some next steps. So you're continuing to have some control of that conversation. Yeah, I think there's two really important things that you mentioned there. One, you know, the how can we work together? You're making sure that the person you're speaking with, their boxes are being checked. Like, do they want to move forward? And I think there's a, it's not, it's going to feel really salesy if you're trying to get a, in touch with someone's boss and the person that you're speaking with is not sold. That's going to feel really weird. They're, they're, they're going to be unwilling to help. And I think the other thing that you mentioned too that's so important is you're guiding and coaching the buyer on how to make that happen. Because a lot of the people you're speaking with below the line, they aren't even usually aware of what the buying process is at their company. So just being able to educate them on where things might fall short and things to look out for and being a trusted advisor is super big. Um, Ryan, do you have some thoughts on you know, kind of multi-threading and getting additional folks involved, that sort of thing? Yeah, I think, um, you know, my thought there is is very similar to Bella's, but there's some things I'd probably add, right? I think, you know, the someone asked, Obi asked, how do you go about creating a champion? It's making them feel like they're a part of the process, right? I can't tell you how many times I hear in a call, like, cool, can we get your CFO on a call so I can sell them and I can show them the product? It's, hey, help me help you, Obi. This is going to solve these problems for you. What does your CFO think like and how does he operate and what are your thoughts on, you know, what's most impactful to him and what he's going to care about when we work on this together It's just making them feel like they're a part of it. I don't want to make them feel like they're a stepping stone in the process and I'm just trying to step over them or step around them. I want them to feel like, hey, when this solution gets implemented, I helped do it. I helped create that and get that to the finish line. The other thing that I would just mention as well is enable your champion to sell for you if they're not going to be able to get you right then and there. You know, my calendar is booked from the moment I get into the moment I leave. So if Bella was trying to get some time with me, it's going to be hard. But if Bella comes to me and says, Ryan, I have this tool that will help us generate 30 more meetings a month for my entire team. The rep sent me over a quick three-minute video. He sent me over his calendar availability and two case studies for ZoomInfo's biggest competitors that are using them right now. Can you take a look at that? That is setting me up for success to then be drawn into that sales cycle. And so many times I'll see a rep say, hey, great. I'll trust that you can go get this done for me. I'll send you one white paper. Why don't you follow back up with me in a week and we'll see where we're at. Like that champion is just not going to be able to help sell it. So I want to do as much as I humanly can to make them feel like, man, Ryan put this in a nice email with a bow on top and has everything I possibly could need to present this to my CFO. And he's going to make me look good when I present this to my CFO and make it really easy to loop back into the sales cycle. Yeah, I think Gartner is calling that buyer enablement, making it easy for people. And essentially, you're the best as a rep. You're much better at selling your thing than your champion is. I mean, it's just how it works, (laughs) right? So making it really easy for them. I love that. Um, I got another question from Luke. Do you tend to give price range of what might be suitable whilst on the discovery call? We should talk through two situations. So I think the first situation, you guys do do a demo and talk price. So let's talk about that first, and then we'll talk about what to do, because there are many situations where you wouldn't give price on a first call, but you might be asked and what to do in that situation. So in situation number one, 
I'll kick this question your way, Ryan. How do you think about like when to bring up price and how to talk about it? And that may differ also depending on who you're speaking with as well. But how do you guys think about it? It totally depends on who I'm speaking with. If I'm speaking with a decision maker and I know that they are the decision maker, I typically will kind of punt it and tell them, hey, you know, Jason, we will absolutely talk through pricing and walk through it together today. That's probably going to be in the last 10 minutes of the call. So you have my commitment, Jason, we'll go through it. But I just need to understand what your problem is, how we can solve it, show you the right solution first, and then we can talk numbers. Is that okay? And I think when you commit to that to your buyer, they're like, yeah, totally get it. You know, let's go through what we need to. And as long as you're committing to seeing pricing and numbers at the end, like, let's go through the motion that we need to. So I think with decision makers, I'm kind of just level setting with them that, hey, this will come but this is what I need to do first. And again, most of those decision makers will respect that and understand what they're doing. And oftentimes I'll hear, yeah, that's exactly what I want my sales reps to be doing. So that's fine. Right. On the flip side, if I get a non-decision maker, a champion, I'm probably going to let that ride till the end and say, Hey, we'll get to pricing. We can talk packaging and numbers, but again, I need to understand more. And at the end, it just depends. I, I tell my team like, don't create unnecessary friction in the sales cycle that's not needed. But at the same time, like, it just depends. If it's a sales rep that's been at the company for a month, I'm probably just going to see if I can avoid it and help have them help me get to power. And if I can, great. But if they're really pushing me on it, we might give a range. We might just talk about all the unknown variables. So I think it just depends on the type of person you have. I've had interns buy Zoom Info before. I've had sales reps that have been at a company for a week get Zoom info for their company before. So I think it just depends on the person you're speaking with. And, you know, one of the things that I just think about is, you know, I'm a gambler. I love going to the casino and playing, playing craps or playing blackjack or roulette. You know, do I trust this person at the end of the call or through the end of the demo where, you know, I bet money that I think they're the right champion and they can get me to the promised land Then great. Let's go through pricing. But if I can tell that I'm five layers too low, they don't know the answers to my questions. They have no understanding of buying process. I'm probably not going to bet on them. And I'm probably going to bet on my process that I know will work to multi-thread and get to the right people. Yeah. So the, the range and the unknown variables, let's get uh, specific with a couple of those things, because the range, the mistake that you don't want to make is like under promising. And then you go to present price later and it's like more than, than what you ballparked. Do you have some some pointers on how to ballpark effectively or how to give a good range and how to think about that and the psychology maybe that you might be thinking about? I'll let Bella go on this one because she knows it pretty well, so she can handle it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I personally, I like to give a, a pretty wide range, right? Because to your point, Jason, I don't want to say, hey, this is going to cost X and then it's double that by the time that we get into a pricing conversation. Like something I typically say is, hey, we have people that spend maybe in the low five figures with us every year. And we have people that spend a million dollars with us every year. And I'll be like, now, candidly, I don't think you guys are going to be a million dollar client. You guys are going to be way far below that, right? But it would help me to understand X, Y, Z and kind of give them a little insight into why you're not wanting to lean into the pricing right away and what will still, what else we're still going to need. Again, just kind of continuing to guide that conversation. But I like to, I like to give them a little bit of, of a wide range, but then, you know, make them feel good that, Hey, this isn't going to be a million dollar investment for you. Right. Like it's going to be likely on the lower end of that, but this is why we are just not quite there yet. Yeah. You want them to know it's not going to be $500 a year. Yeah, correct. Exactly. You're trying to avoid people like that, right? There are sometimes 
uneducated folks, depending on what you're selling, the market is probably pretty aware of like data and things like that. But the other thing I imagine you guys need though, is that it's so much more than data. There's like the whole go to markets, like tech stack you guys can sell. So you need to know a lot about what they're trying to accomplish from a marketing and a sales standpoint, how many people they have, what their problems are running into. So I think there's like very legitimate reasons, you know, for wanting more things before you give someone a price. I agree. You know, I think it also, um, oh, I think it also just depends on the buyer. I, I will try to yeah. dismiss it early in the sales cycle or early in the sales call, just saying, Hey, I still need to know the problem. I still need to make sure we can solve it. I'd hate to throw out a random number and not be anywhere close to where we need to be. And you'd be surprised how many times people will accept that answer and understand, but then vice versa, you might get someone in procurement or the CFO where they want to know the numbers. And again, I just think like, don't put your deal at risk. There's so many different ways to kind of handle that situation, whether it's ranges, whether it's not giving the number, whether it's avoiding it, whatever it might be. But I think, again, it kind of depends on what type of persona you're speaking to. For some people, like you might have to give an idea on that number and then be able you know, to walk them off the ledge and know, hey, we'll work with you on that number, but let's still go validate the rest of the things that we need to go do. Yeah, love it. Let's talk about kind of the follow-up. So let's say we've done really good discovery. In your guys' case, we're doing a demo, you know, in that call. Let's talk about what happens through that. And let's start with like firming up next steps. So as a general rule of thumb, and maybe it's not a specific number of minutes, but how do we think about how much time we leave ourselves at the end of the call for next steps? And let's get super specific with, if it's scheduling a call, are we asking them to open up the other person's calendar? Do we book it right on the spot? Do they send the invite to everyone else? Do we send the invite? Like, let's get really specific because I think this is where a lot of reps run into situations where they don't get a calendared next step and they end up having to chase the prospect for weeks and maybe they don't even ever hear back from them again. So, uh, Bella, we'll kick this question your way first. How do you think about the next steps piece of the equation here? You know, I... I personally, like with at least how long our calls are, I want to leave at least a solid five minutes at the end to be able to really solidify next steps. Because exactly to your point, Jason, I hate chasing people down and they hate being chased down, right? They don't want me blowing up their phone and their inbox is trying to get that next meeting booked. So while you have them there, while the thought and everything that you guys just covered with them is fresh in their mind, why not capitalize on that momentum and book the next step right then and there? So I will ask them to pull up their calendar. If we've already solidified that they want to bring their boss to their call, I ask them to pull up their boss's calendar. And great, let's find a time that works well for everyone. Um, I always am sending out the invite. I do like to give them a little bit of you know, range, especially if they are bringing someone else to the call to say, hey, do you want to send that over to them um, after you give them a heads up? Or would you prefer that I just add them to that directly, right? Just help have them kind of gauge how that person um, would respond the best to but I leave at least a solid five minutes and I always get my next steps scheduled on the call. If I hop into my pipeline review with Ryan and he sees that I don't have next steps booked, the first question he's going to ask me is why when you, ha when you had them on the phone. That's the time to get that booked. Yeah, <laughs> love it. <laughs> How do you think about uh, Ryan? Again, this is like a small detail, I think that can make a really big impact when you're inviting people that weren't on that first call. How do you think about like what you name the calendar invite, what you put into the agenda. Do we add an agenda or not? Like, how do you think about 
that kind of stuff, keeping in mind that there's going to be people on this next call who have like, they don't know anything about this, the previous conversation. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I normally keep it pretty generic. It'll be Zoom Info and XYZ Company. And maybe I put intro on it. Um, I might put a very brief agenda into it, but honestly, what I'm doing is more along the value sends and the follow-up that goes behind the calendar invite. The invite's just there to make sure we lock down time. I don't lose momentum in my sales cycle. And it's a form of, uh, it's a buying signal to me. If they lock down next steps, they're more likely to be a real prospect versus someone that doesn't. So it's more or less just to keep the deal cycle going. To me, in order to kind of get that commitment from the multi-threading and from other champions and to keep momentum going, that's coming from the follow-ups that I do afterwards. So as Zoom Info, we'll create custom vidyards or we'll snippet a piece of the chorus call where it was just the most impactful piece and say, hey, we're gonna send this out to you. When you sit down with your boss, just hit play so he has an idea of what we're talking about. That's a really easy way for them to see value. Let's just say my call is on Wednesday and then my next follow-up call is on Monday next week. We call it value dripping, but I'm probably gonna break up my follow-up email into four different emails. Today is the mission critical stuff, the recording, the white paper they want. Tomorrow is the case study. Thursday is going to be maybe a screenshot of the, of the pack or of the platform. Friday might be an executive touch point for my leadership or my VP, but there's things that I will do just to make sure that they're staying engaged from point A to point B. The call is really just a process piece to make sure things don't fall off the rails, you know, in between those points. Yeah, and I would just double down on Ryan's point there, right? Because I think in sales, naturally, it's a position where we ask for things more often than we're always, you know, giving things where you're going to ask for the sale and whatever that might be, right? And so to have those value adds that are just no ask, hey, keeping you in the front of their mind too between now and your next call, that's also going to be critical to making sure that they actually show up to that call that you booked with them on your initial discovery. So I think just getting that all done immediately after your call, if you can, and create, you know, creating that plan of attack is just going to help you stay front of mind for them and manage that entire sales cycle. Real quick, because we only have two minutes left. What do you do when a prospect gives you an objection right at the end and says, you know what, let me go meet with them first. And then I'll come back to you with the time. I'm going to pressure test it at least once. And so I'm probably going to go back to them and say, hey, look, you know, Jason, there's things that you didn't know about our product, about our solution, what we could or couldn't do. I'd hate for you to try to go represent my company and our product and what we can solve for after a 15, a 20 minute call. Do you mind if we just keep that meeting on the calendar? We can walk through it together and hey, if we're not a fit or there is an alignment, we can cancel that call. We can part as friends still. But you know, I just want to make sure that we're doing everything we need to to work on this together. And candidly, like I've done this so many times, like I'm going to be able to help you internalize this much better. So I'll pressure test it first and see how real it actually is. There are going to be scenarios where you just can't go out of it and they're going to push. It happens, but I'm always going to pressure test at least once. Love it. Uh, look at that. You got a compliment on how white your teeth are, Ryan, <laughs> in the chat. Oh. <laughs> um, you two were awesome. I dropped into the chat. Uh, go blow these guys up on LinkedIn. Connect with them. Uh, connect with me if you want future kind of announcements and posts about webinars like this. Go check out Zoom Info and I really appreciate all the engagement and, and Ryan and Bill, I appreciate you two spending time with us today. This is awesome. Yeah, thanks everyone. Thanks, Jason. Yep. Thanks, cool. Jason. All righty. Have a good one, everyone. We will see you later. Bye.